Listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson and I produce the Alberta Advantage, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I'm your host, Kate Jacobson, and today we are bringing you a very special episode of the podcast. From May 7th to 12th, Team Advantage members traveled across the prairies to Winnipeg, where we attended the centenary conference of the 1919 General Strike, the largest mass struggle carried out by workers in Canada. I have reconvened Team Advantage back in Calgary to do a little bit of a retrospective on our time on the prairies and our time at the conference. So joining me today is Rory. Hi. Karen. Hello. Steven. Hi, everyone. Will. Hello. And Joel. Hi there. So to start off with, we'd like to give you some background on the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. The Winnipeg General Strike was the most significant event of the labor unrest that was sweeping mostly Western Canada in 1919, and historians broadly call this the Great Labor Revolt. The immediate catalyst for the strike in Winnipeg was the refusal of employers to collectively bargain with trade union councils. And when we say collective bargaining, I think it's really important in this context to understand that they weren't talking about collective bargaining in the way that it is discussed today as kind of negotiating a contract that has set terms, sympathy strikes are illegal, you can only strike at the end of your contract. Collective bargaining was a much more far-reaching and all-encompassing topic, and it was looking more at employers actually recognizing workers as a class and recognizing their representatives, whether they were radical syndicalist unions like the One Big Union or the more traditional business craft unions. But the wider context was that this was a politically explosive situation in the aftermath of the First World War, a war that had ended because of a, a working-class revolutionary wave that was sweeping across Europe, most notably in Russia and Germany. And in Canada, the war had made industrialized, industrialists very rich, uh, while the cost of living sharply increased from wartime inflation. Soldiers returning uh, from the war found it hard to find work in the post-war recession, building resentment that their sacrificers had been only for the ruling class who set them to die. Uh, Winnipeg itself had seen rapid growth after the crushing of the Northwest Rebellion of the Métis peoples in 1885, uh, as white settlement poured into Manitoba to dispossess the indigenous people of the land. So yeah, we're looking at, in the early 20th century, by about 1911, Winnipeg is the third largest city in the country. It has a really developed industrial base, particularly around the railroads, metalworking, and meatpacking. And demographically, this is a very divided city. So it's divided between a WASP business elite and a really diverse working class that is composed of British Canadians, Eastern European immigrants, and Indigenous people. And the business class, of course, did very well during the war, while standards of living for everyone else stagnated. In 1917 and 1918, Winnipeg workers had gone on strike to force concessions from employers with some success, even though wartime strikes were illegal. Throughout the winter and spring of 1919, there was a flurry of organizing meetings in Winnipeg about the poor living conditions and popular anger for a strike mounted. On May 1st, the uh, building and metal trades went on strike to protest their employer's refusal to collectively bargain. They requested the support from the Trade Union Council, which on May 13th, the overwhelming majority of its membership voted to strike at 11 a.m. on May 15th. So 11,000 unionized workers walked off the job 
Uh, along with non-unionized workers, uh, the strike swelled to 35,000 in a city of less than 180,000. Gathering at the intersection of Portage and Maine, they brought the city's economy to a halt. A central strike committee was founded to coordinate essential services such as food and water, allowing some to keep operating so that the workers weren't seen as scabs. Yeah, so they would have signs that would say operating by permission of the general strike committee, which is cool and good as hell. Another thing that was also cool and good as hell is the Daily Bulletin they founded, which is called Western Labor News, and it was to keep people updated during the strike. Um, although there's no concrete evidence for it, it's very professionally done, so a lot of people believe it was done by typesetters from the um, corporate press that were on mm. strike at the time. In response to the strikers, the business elite forms uh, what they call the Citizens Committee of 1000, a secretive anti-strike organization and meets in the Board of Trade building. The committee gets its members uh, to agree to not negotiate until the strike is called off. They also agitate for federal intervention to break the strike. Um, the committee also accuses the strikers of Bolshevism, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite accusations. So on May 26th, all public servants are on, who were on strike, so city workers, postal workers, are fired for joining the strike. And all but 16 of the cops in Winnipeg were fired on June 9th for refusing to uh, agree not to strike. So amazingly, the cops supported the strikers. And then sympathy strikes uh, spread across the country in Montreal, Toronto, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver, to name a few. On June 1st, 10,000 demobilized soldiers demonstrate in front of the Manitoba legislature in support of the strike. And at this point, the federal government is involved on the side of the employing class about how best to end the strike with as few concessions as possible. The federal government uh, amends the Immigration Act to allow for the deportation of foreign-born strikers, uh, many of whom were British-born trade unionists. And on June 17th, the Royal Northwest Mounted Police began to arrest strike leaders on charges of sedition. And these harsh tactics really angered the workers in Winnipeg, who decided to stage these rallies in defiances of the mayor. And this culminates on Saturday, June 21st, on a day later known as Bloody Saturday. It also produces the most enduring image of the strike, which is a crowd flipping a streetcar driven by a scab. This is met with a response from the Royal Northwest Mounted Police on horseback, backed by special constables. They deputized civilians who opposed the strike, essentially. And so after the f crowd refuses to disperse, the, the Mounties at the time charged the crowd, attacking people with batons. The crowd responded by throwing rocks. The police opened fire on the crowd, wounding dozens and killing two. The police broke up the crowd and arrested 94 people. By the evening, the army was patrolling the streets with machine guns. In the days following, more and more strike supporters were being arrested. The strike bulletin was formally banned, and the strikers really began to face state repression. And this leads to the strike committee calling off the general strike on June 25th, and the strike formally ends in defeat at 11 a.m. on June 26th. The Citizens Committee of 1000 then prosecuted the strike leaders for not, not merely for their actions, but for their political ideas, too. Some leaders were acquitted, but many received lengthy jail sentences, uh, which enraged workers. A royal commission uh, later determined that the strike was not an attempt to overthrow the government, surprise, surprise, <laughs> as it was painted, but a result of grievances that employers refused to address. So the strike left a legacy of working class struggle that reverberated across the country and helped galvanize political movements such as the communists and later the CCF. Uh, the reaction to the strike also galvanized business leaders around the country. This is when you see Robert Borden's government introduce Section 98 of the Criminal Code, which basically made belonging to a socialist or communist organization illegal um, throughout the 1920s and 1930s uh, and was part of the way that radicals and labor unions and labor dissidents were prosecuted by the Canadian state. 
strike leaders like uh, George Armstrong, William Ivins, John Queen, and uh, John Queen were elected to the Manitoba legislature the year following the strike while they were still in jail. Uh, J.S. Woodsworth and Abraham Heaps were also elected to Parliament. And this basically laid the groundwork for the Canadian state to offer concessions to workers or face another labor revolt. The following interviews were conducted by me, Kate Jacobson, on May 10th at the University of Winnipeg. I first spoke with David Camfield, who teaches labor studies and sociology at the University of Manitoba. He is the author of Canadian Labor in Crisis, Reinventing the Workers' Movement, and he presented a paper at the conference entitled Beyond Nostalgia, The Winnipeg General Strike and the Future of Workers' Struggles. This is Kate Jacobson for the Alberta Advantage. We are here at the 1919 General Strike Centenary Conference at the University of Winnipeg. Winnipeg here in Treaty 1 territory. I'm sitting down with David Campfield, who is a researcher and a lecturer who was part of one of the many panels here at the conference. So in the introduction to your talk, you suggest that it's unwise to remember the Winnipeg general strike simply as kind of an event that belongs strictly to the past, and that we probably shouldn't think of the future as something that is merely like a continuation of the present. Um, and that like, it's really similar to kind of Mark Fisher's idea that capitalist realism relies on this kind of cancellation or foreclosing uh, of the future to radical possibility, and you see kind of this future merely as an endless present. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how the Winnipeg General Strike might be useful for thinking about the future rather than simply researching the past. I think it's important to think about the strike that way because class struggle is not over, I guess as a first thing to say. Um, we're often presented with the strike today as if it was something which was um, part of uh, a process which just no longer no longer happens. Um, and, you know, there's something that can be confined to the past, that yes, workers may have struggled then, um, but they, you know, the class struggle, at least in this part of the world, somehow died. Um, but if we understand that class struggles take different forms uh, over time, uh, then I think we can understand that the class struggle is certainly happening still today in the Canadian state uh, and that it's not going to end as long as we have a society that's founded on class antagonism. Uh, and so I think that in, in general it's really important to think about it that way. I, th I think the, the important thing to think about if we think about the future is to ask the question, uh, does our future include the possibility of profound social crisis and working class upsurge? I think if we're thinking about the next century. And I think if we look at what's going on in the world in terms of the trajectory of capitalism and the ecological crisis, uh, that it's quite clear that there's, there are very real possibilities of profound social crisis and new forms of class struggle taking place. And if we think about it that way, then I think we can think about the strike in 1919 and looking forward from a perspective of anticipation and not just recollection or being nostalgic about the past and the classical workers' movement that once was. Certainly anything that might happen in the future will not be a rerun of Winnipeg 1919. We're not looking for the remake, right? Uh, but I think there are certainly possibilities. Yeah, so the way that the strike kind of appears in classic Canadian historiography and also in the way the mainstream Canadian labor movement remembers it is like, oh, this was a struggle that was for collective bargaining rights. And this is part of this struggle in the labor movement that takes place in the early part of the 20th century. And it's workers fighting for kind of traditional like union demands. And a lot of it revolves around collective bargaining. Do you think this is an accurate characterization of the Winnipeg general strike? Does a 
really crucial question because that is the way the strike is for the most part being discussed now. And this is a line that sums this up. There's a, a, a musical made by a Winnipeg-based person named Danny Schur called Strike. And there's also a film now called Stand, because they couldn't call it Strike, uh, about which is connected loosely to 1919. And there's a song in this musical uh, which has the line, nothing radical, nothing radical about that. And so this is the idea that what workers were fighting for in Winnipeg in 1919 you know, involved nothing radical, that somehow it was simply about bread and butter demands and collective bargaining rights, and that somehow this is exactly the same thing that workers are fighting for today. But in fact, I think that's wrong if we want to understand what actually happened in 1919. Collective bargaining was crucially an issue. You know, the employers in the building trades and the metal trades wouldn't negotiate with the workers who were attempting to have industrial unionism in those areas. But really, that was a trigger, you know, that was or a spark that set off something that was much bigger because, of course, you had in Winnipeg 12,000 unionized workers and something like double that number of non-unionized workers, you know, the entire working class, um, and with the significant involvement of unwaged people as well, right, not just waged workers. Um, Involved, So it really, as historian Jim Naylor has put it, it was really not just about collective bargaining. It was really a citywide upsurge or an urban revolt, um, which had potentially regional and national implications as well. So, and th that was really tied up with the aspirations for a new, so, you know, for a new society, um, often associated with the idea of the conversion of production for profit into con production for use. Um, it's not that people were literally striking, expecting to create a new society in Winnipeg, but to understand what this upsurge of working class struggle was, we need to understand it far beyond just collective bargaining. And also, we need to remember that what collective bargaining meant in 1919 was at least somewhat different from what it came to mean later. It did not mean negotiating in order to have a collective agreement that says you can't strike during its term, you know, within a framework of labor law that says you can only strike when the agreement has expired with management's rights clauses and, you know, a ban on sympathy strikes and, and so on. Um, those things would have all been seen as infringements on collective bargaining in 1919. So what workers were fighting for when they talked about collective bargaining in 1919 was quite different than what collective bargaining came to be from the middle of the 1940s on in Canada in terms of what the capitalist state did. Why do you think there's an impulse among Canadian historians and I think even among many in the Canadian labor movement to deny some of the radical elements or impulses of the Winnipeg general strike? Well, on the one hand, I think there's simply people not understanding, right? Um, but and they were also res people responding to the previous interpretation of the strike, the initial interpretation, uh, which was to say it was a seditious conspiracy. Um, you know, that's what you got from the Citizens Committee 1000. That's what the, s the state did when they prosecuted and framed, you know, um, this conspiracy of private business in the state to, to frame strike leaders. Um, and so to challenge that and to try to fight for the social legitimacy of unions in the context of Cold War Canada, I think we can understand why you know, many people kind of took that, that direction in interpretation. Um, but it also, you know, if, if, you, if your aspirations, your vision for uh, the labor movement doesn't include any kind of challenge to, you know, the social order that we are, find ourselves in, then you can understand why there wouldn't be a, an appetite for kind of exploring the complexity of what the strike actually was. So moving on a bit more broadly to the future, we're, it's 2019 right now. It's been over a decade since the financial crash and the crisis of 2008. And for many people that kind of finally discredited neoliberal economic policy, yet as we're seeing for us in Jason Kenney's Alberta and in Doug Ford's Ontario, the response to capitalist crisis 
continues to be the same as it always has, like tax breaks for corporations and austerity for the rest of us. So how do you see this kind of strange post-financial crash period of capitalist development like resolving itself? Okay, well, in the big picture, the way I think we need to see what happened in 2008 was actually the end of an era. I think we can look from the early 80s when you have the beginnings of the neoliberal economic expansion, you know, that, that wave of capitalist accumulation finally peters out, you know, in the crisis in 2008, 2009, which manifests itself in the financial sector, but which is not just a financial crisis. And I think, so I think it's a historical turning point. We, so I think really it marks the beginning of a new, a new era. Uh, and I think the global slump that began in 2008 is not over, that we can think about the period that we're living in now is in, in some ways like the long depression of the late 19th century, and in some ways like the Great Depression of the 1930s. Obviously it's not the same as either of those periods, but we have a situation where uh, there has not been a sufficient degree of capitalist restructuring to restore the rate of profit uh, to create a new wave of, of, of investment. Uh, and so there's, you know, this economic era that we're in persists. I and mean, we should also remember that, you know, the Canadian state was not hit nearly as badly in 2008, 2009 as the U.S. and some other parts of the world, a lot of the EU, for example. Uh, and so I think we can expect, in this fact, there's some really good analysis being done that gives us some evidence to think that the next recession is going to be significantly worse here. And again, the question is, how much will it take uh, to restore that rate of profit? Because there's no such thing as a permanent crisis of capitalism. At a certain point, you know, enough less profitable firms will be eliminated uh, to be able to restore a new round of investment, but at terrible human cost. What we're living in now is kind of st staggering within this I think it's within this period, um, and that defines a lot of what's going on in terms of politics and society. Yeah, if capitalism is good at anything, it is resolving crises in capitalism, which I think is something that surprises a lot of people when you say that, because they say capitalism is terrible at resolving crises. It just like creates immense human misery and suffering. But I mean, the point of capitalism is not to end human misery and suffering. It's to perpetuate itself and to perpetuate capital accumulation. And capitalism always finds a way to kind of spatially or temporally uh, displace crisis. And one of the crises I think capitalism is coming up uh, against right now is very much climate change and climate crisis. And it's certainly increasing in severity, very much so uh, in my lifetime, and will continue to do so at escalatingly faster and faster rates. How do you foresee governments responding to the increased costs and pressures of climate crisis? And who in society is going to end up paying for the climate crisis? Like, do you think there's a new kind of eco-austerity that might be on the horizon? I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, I think, well, first of all, I, I do not claim to have a crystal ball. I'm not predicting specific events. But I think in general, it's quite you know, easy to see how as ecological crisis, including climate change, intensifies, there are going to be all sorts of costs falling on the state, uh, costs of adaptation. You know, attempting to uh, respond, whether it's flooding on coasts, whether it's responding to problems in agriculture, you know, problems in the urban environment, uh, there are going to be a lot of costs that you know, capitalists will, and, and the population as a whole will want the state to, to address. Um, and the question of you know, trying to create the conditions where profitable capitalist accumulation can still can still happen in a warming world, um, and population relocations, and you know, there are all sorts of possibilities, and. You know, in an era where we're already seeing pressures 
right, in, in the public sector on public spending and austerity. Um, I think this creates a situation where, by much as the you know, states found the money to address the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, uh, they will attempt to find the money to address some of these questions, but of course at the cost of spending on social services, on public health care, uh, and on any of the things that the state still does that are actually contributing to the quality of people's lives. Uh, and so, because these are things, problems that individual capitalist firms can't respond to, right? They need the state to, to move on those, on those questions. So I think eco-austerity is a, is a good line. Um, and we need to be aware of that. And we need to be also very concerned about the political conditions where this might play out, because the argument that these things are necessary in order to save the planet, right, that people should accept all this austerity, they should agree to weakening of public education, public health care, for example, um, restrictions on union rights, whatever it might be, in the name of saving the planet. That's a the kind of the most powerful claim that you could be making, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so all sorts of uh, claims might be made that this is now you know, an emergency situation, we need to suspend all sorts of um, you know, programs or rights um, in order to deal with this with this crisis, I mean, that's something we need to be concerned about, and I think the left needs to make sure that, you know, we're not uh, you know, drawn into that, uh, to a program of eco-austerity uh, that's presented as uh, an emergency situation, a state of emergency where we have to accept all sorts of things that previously were seen as not acceptable. So at the beginning of the interview, you mentioned that part of the way you see the Winnipeg general strike in relation to the future is that the combination of the climate crisis and of neoliberalism and of austerity makes you believe that there can be upsurges of popular revolt, that there can be crises in the social order uh, going forward, and that's certainly something I'm quite sympathetic to. But I was wondering if there is anywhere in the world you are seeing the groundwork for or these upsurges of popular revolt, any examples of fighting austerity, uh, fighting climate change that you find uh, inspiring or interesting in some way? If we're looking for potential you know, seeds of the future and the present, uh, or things that might give us some glimpses of what, what it might look like. Um, and this is not always positive, right? Sometimes these can be glimpses of, of quite terrifying future possibilities. Um, I mean, we can, we can see the growth of the hard right and the far right, um, certainly in, in Europe, but in the US as well, and to a lesser extent within the Canadian state. I think you can see how uh, in a situation of everyday life becoming more difficult, if, you know, there aren't, working class alternatives, uh, alternatives from the left, the, the appeal of those uh, political forces may well, may well increase, so we can think about that. But then we can also think about new forms of struggle that have been bubbling up. Um, I sometimes wonder is whether, in a certain sense, is Greece our future? I mean, you think about Greece as you know, less developed but still an advanced capitalist country within the EU that was subjected to the most uh, savage austerity in the wake of 2008, 2009. Um, that I, I wondered if there's more of that ahead, right? more, more of these kind of ex extreme uh, austerity scenarios um, that we, and obviously the, the enormous level of popular upsurge that happened in, in response to that and the resistance, you know, a very large number of 24 and 48 hour general strikes and um, new political organizations, you know, moving forward and, and the kind of thing, even if the result with Tsaritsa in government was an utter disaster and capitulation mm -hmm. to neoliberalism. Um, but then you can also see the, the unex completely unexpected and unpredicted uh, emergence of the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests in France, right? A, a very complex 
phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, obviously utterly unlike the LFS in you know, this part of the world, but uh, drawing in all sorts of lower income working class people and not so well off you know, small business owners and other people in a political movement that in a sense claiming not to be political or outside the official political uh, structures and not identifying with any of the, the parties um, with all sorts of contradictory elements, but evolving in a kind of increasingly uh, anti-austerity, uh, anti-ruling class kind of a direction, um, but in a way that seems to me to be about people grasping for new forms of organization and new politics to respond to the sense that all the existing ones of all political stripes were inadequate or didn't speak to them, right? Um, And so that's something that was genuinely not predicted. It came from parts of French society that have not been prominent in the many social movements of the 21st century in France. small town, rural France, rather than being in, more in the, you know, Paris and the other big cities, um, not in the highly unionized public sector and, and so on. So that seems to me to say that, you know, the social conditions are going to create the poss- all these possibilities. And then the question is, are there going to be forces of, you know, the radical left that can actually become part of these new developments, um, not in the sense of going in to raid them, but like trying to actually be part of them in order to be pro- part of the process to learn from them, but also then to try to shape them to combat the racism, to combat, you know, there are acts of overt homophobia, but all sorts of other things like that on the barricades and the, uh, so on in, in the, some of those movements. So to be actually inside it rather than standing on the outside lecturing it, mm-hmm. um, but trying to actually help people who are becoming politically engaged for the first time to actually, you know, move in a, in a left direction to kind of work on their best impulses and use their, their best uh, impulses to challenge the more conservative ones which could be seized upon by you know hard right or far right political forces for their own uh, agendas so i think that's an interesting thing to consider and then we can see in, in the us where of course public education has been subjected to cuts and and reorganization goes much further than anything we've experienced here you can see now you know, beginning in west virginia or you can go back further and look at the chicago teacher strike but certainly 2018 2019 west virginia got it all you know, got it all going. Uh, remarkable organization, uh, rank and file self-organization within unions, sometimes not, you know, outside the unions entirely, um, or in situations where the unions have very weak, uh, you know, are in very weak uh, conditions. All sorts of uh, struggles of, of teachers and other education workers in alliances with parents and other people to defend what's left of the public education system in the U.S. and to fight for this, what they call the schools that the children deserve. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's you know another recent emergent wave of, of class struggle that we can learn from. Again, I don't think the future is going to look like any of these things exactly, but if we're trying to be attuned to what might come, I think these are all things to pay attention to. You know, I have no doubt that the decades ahead are not going to look like the most recent decades. And we always have the problem of thinking that the future is going to look like the past. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. I really, really appreciated it. Well, thanks so much for your interest. You just heard an interview with David Camfield on his paper, Beyond Nostalgia, the Winnipeg General Strike and the Future of Workers' Struggles, originally presented at the 1919 General Strike Centenary Conference in Winnipeg Treaty 1 Territory.
I also I, I gotta stress uh, about the the conference that it was um, despite some of the our, our ribbing there it was very well run mm -hmm. it went very smoothly mm -hmm. um, the food was great the food like that's what I was gonna bring up was like they they fed us it was amazing like great food great options it was just wonderful yeah, yeah. shout out to the organizers absolutely shout out to the organizers and if you've ever like traveled with like a group of your friends you know that like trying to pick somewhere to go for lunch like every day is just absolute hell so thank you for like removing that from us and it is why we ate at A&W every day we yeah. were not provided lunch yeah it's on one of our uh brands to nationalize shortlist so oh, absolutely yeah. so our stay in winnipeg as you might have gathered was absolutely wonderful we learned a great deal from fellow organizers and radicals all across the prairies even from as far away as ontario uh, and we really really enjoyed spending time in winnipeg learned a lot as well from the centenary conference of the 1919 general strike thank you very much to the organizers of the conference and for everyone who made our time in winnipeg uh, so very very enjoyable on behalf of everyone here at Team Advantage. Have a good one and goodbye. Thanks Bye. everyone. Makes no difference where I go. You're the best Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary. Makes no difference where I